Welcome to Remember, a podcast about building community. I'm Carla Salter. I thought long and hard about who to have as the first guest on this podcast. There are so many people who are doing wonderful, important work, who have amazing wisdom and experience that we can learn from. But the person I settled on was King County Council Member Larry Gossett, a true man of the people who has served his community in a number of capacities for over 50 years. Mr. Gossett absolutely embodies community, generosity of spirit, and service, and he's exactly the right person to kick us off. Spark of Service was lit when he was a young college student one of a very small number of black students at the University of Washington. And he actually talks about this in our interviews, so I'll let him tell the story. But he helped found the university's Black Student Union, a group whose work resulted in a number of policy changes at the university that are benefiting UW students to this day. While in school, Gossett joined the Seattle chapter of the Black Panther Party and continued to work for justice long after graduation. Over the course of his activism, he developed friendships with three other young activist leaders of color. Bernie Whitebear, who was Native American, a member of the Colville tribe, Bob Santos, who was Filipino, and Roberto Maestas, who was Chicano. Together, those four men, who later became known as the Gang of Four, made a profound and lasting impact on the city of Seattle, and in many ways, on the entire country. And before I forget, a couple years ago I read a book called Gang of Four, Four Leaders, Four Communities, One Friendship. It's written uh, by Bob Santos and another writer, Gary Iwamoto, and I found it at the Northwest African American Museum, but I've seen it at local bookstores, and I'm pretty sure you can get it at the library. So if you have an interest in learning more about the Gang of Four, it's a great place to start. It's a really fascinating book. But like all three of the other members of the Gang of Four, Mr. Gossett led a community organization, the Central Area Motivation Program, also known as CAMP, which is actually now known as Centerstone which provided much-needed services, including food bank, home energy support, job training, and mentoring. Gossett remained camp's director until 1993, so he started in 1979 and remained the director until 1993, when he was elected to the King County Council. He is the longest-serving member on the council and has consistently championed those who are most marginalized in our community. At 72, he continues to be incredibly generous with his time, attending events most nights and weekends, taking calls from constituents on his cell phone, and agreeing to let me interview him early in the morning before a long day of meetings and other work responsibilities. I recorded my interview with Councilmember Gossett in two parts in his home, so actually that was two mornings (laughs) that he had to get up early and meet with me. And at the time of the interview, the city was doing some sewer work directly outside his front door, so you will definitely hear some background noise. sounds like construction noise, so I apologize for that. I chose to interview Mr. Gossett first because of his richness of experience and wealth of knowledge, but it was actually those qualities that made it difficult for me to focus the interview. We just didn't have enough time to cover everything I wanted to ask him about. The good news is I have enough content for at least two episodes, and he's also agreed to be interviewed again. But since this interview was not quite as focused as I would have liked, there are a couple of themes that really spoke to me that I'd like to call out. The first is that community has been and still is critically important to the survival of black people in the United States. Taking care of each other has enabled us to survive 
and in some cases even thrive in unspeakable conditions. To me, this is beautiful, and it speaks to the power and importance of community. And the second point is that organizing is critical. Nothing can substitute for real contact with other people, having dialogue with anyone who is willing to listen, even people you don't expect to be receptive. Gossett himself was radicalized through contact with other people, education and exposure to new ideas, and he took those new ideas and made contact with more people and exposed them to those ideas, and that is how he helped to build the movement. And so with that, my interview with King County Council member Larry Gossett. Okay, Councilmember Gossett, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So I'm going to start with a couple of questions that I ask all my guests. And the first one is, what does community mean to you? Uh, community means folks who live and reside in the same neighborhood, and they come together for social, cultural, educational, and familial uh, reasons. By familiar, I mean the family. They, they talk about ways that they can be mutually supportive of all the families in the neighborhood. That is what community means. And I think that that term is especially important when we talk about the historic situation of uh, people of African descent in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Black people, unfortunately, uh, sense of community arose primarily from uh, being uh, some of the most oppressed people in, in their world community. We, the first 246 years of our uh, experience here in the United States was as slaves. So what's amazing is the survival and reproduction rates of African people in this country. I don't think there's any other people that could have survived uh, our experience of being treated as uh, chattel slaves, as uh, people whose only purpose for existence is to work to make others uh, wealthy. And we took that and made community out of it. And that's how, in my estimation, we have been able to survive. Is there a particular community or community experience that you've witnessed or been part of that strikes you as something to emulate? Yeah, if I may quote Isabel uh, Wilkerson, who is the author of um, of uh, what's the warmth of other sons? The warmth of other sons. Uh, she talks about uh, the profound way that the six million ex slaves who migrated to northern cities were able to survive, leaving a horrific terrorist kind of environment to one that perhaps might be. Uh, less race conscious, but just as significantly, uh, speaking in institutional terms, uh, racist and uh, maintaining racial discrimination against them, but yet they survived. And many of us, like my daddy, strived, got the first blue collar job he ever had. He had been a cotton picker in the uh, South, was able to buy a house for his wife and six kids mm -hmm. oh man i think our history and our sense of community has been amazing since we're talking about community 
I feel like change agents, change agents are a big part of building the whole communities that benefit everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd like to talk to you about your activism and especially your experience organizing ordinary people um, to mm-hmm. affect changes that will benefit them. Uh, so I want to just start with what your what was your first experience with activism and what motivated you? Okay. Um, my first experience with being a community organizer was joining VISTA. I call it, uh, and by VISTA I mean Volunteers in Service to America, which is the Domestic Peace Corps, and I call that experience the signature experience of my uh, life because I was sent by VISTA from the central area of Seattle to central Harlem in New York City, 1966 and 67. And the reason I joined VISTA was not altruistic. I didn't do it because I wanted to help poor black people. I was trying to avoid uh, the drafts, which mm. existed in the 1960s. And I was a college student at the University of Washington, and I was looking for alternatives. It didn't include running to Canada or going to the JAIL. You dig what I'm saying? Uh, So I found that the Peace Corps or the Domestic Peace Corps that had just started were uh, things you could get involved in and would provide an alternative to military service. I joined VISTA. It was the greatest decision I ever made because when I landed in Central Harlem, it was just two weeks after Stokely Carmichael in Mississippi had articulated a new phrase that just captured the imagination of black people all across this country, but particularly in northern cities, like where Harlem is located in New York City. And that was the term black power. Mm -hmm. And I got involved in the black power movement uh, in New York City in Harlem in, in, uh, in particular. And uh, my development, my understanding of the world, my um, falling into what became a special calling for me, you know, to be involved in the movement for social change, particularly as a, as it related to people who were uh, born and raised, African people who were born and raised here in the United States. And I made the commitment to working and moving in any way that I can. At the end of the year, I could have stayed in New York, but I wanted to get back to my home community. So I came back to Seattle, Washington, with the intent of either starting the Black Power Movement or getting involved in it if it already exists. And I didn't know because I was gone 15 straight months. Mm-hmm. I, I arrived here uh, to, cut, to go back to the University of Washington in mid-September 1967. And I was very happy to learn that Stokely Carmichael had come uh, in April of that same year and had uh, inspired, revolutionized a lot of young people that I had grown up with. And they were now involved in an organization called SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And the second day I was on my uh, joint SNCC. But I want to mention, because I think this is always relevant, the experience that kind of shows this, and it's tied to my mother and my youngest brother picking me up at SeaTac Airport. Uh, I got off the plane before they got there. So uh, so Mama and Patrick, Patrick is my, brother's, my youngest brother's name, walked up to the gate, 
uh, that they knew. But I was shocked, uh, Carla, because they both, both of them walked by me. They had no <laughs> idea. Recognize you. They didn't have any idea who I was. <laughs> um, I had a dashiki on. I had not blamed that a lot of cats be ran on these ghetto streets, but I had African uh, uh, necklace. Uh, I had shades and I had a very big natural. And uh, uh, the shades I wore every day, they were a prescription because I needed to be able to see. But Mama and, and Patrick didn't know who I was, so they walked by me. And then I said, Mama, this is me. And she recognized my voice and they turned around and came back. That was a very <laughs> funny experience. And she said, Larry, what's wrong with you, boy? What you all dressed up like Africans? I said, this is me, Mom. And by the way, Mother, my name is not Larry. My name is Abba Yoruba. Oh, boy, you don't go on crazy. Let me get you home to your daddy so you can cut that ass and, and, and talk or whip some sense into you. I said, well, Mom, that's not going to happen, but let's go. Did your dad talk to you? Yeah, but he was cool. He had a sense of understanding. When I, where I had a problem with daddy is the first time I went to jail. Uh, I got back in September of 67. The first time I went to jail was April 4th, 1968. That was also the day that Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. So that was a tumultuous day. My dad and mother drove around King County uh, Courthouse. That's where the jail was then. That's why when you read Wikipedia, I'm the only elected official now whose office is located where his jail cell wow. once was. And that was from the Franklin sit-in. And uh, Daddy drove around it, Mama said, at least 25, 30 times, uh, kind of crying, saying, oh, Johnny, that's my mother's name. Our boy's in that jail. And if he's talking that black power mess, those white folks are going to kill him, Johnny. Mm. They're going to kill him. He was really, really worried. Mm -hmm. And he told me that. And I sat down here and mom when I got out of jail. And they said, we would like, we understand because we come from the South. We know y'all are fighting against discrimination, but I, we don't want you to die. Mm -hmm. I said, I appreciate that. I will always be careful, but I am not going to leave the movement for social change. Keep in mind, I wasn't 17 no more anymore. I was 22, almost 22. So, so by that point, had you already decided this was this yeah. was your life's work? My signature experience and commitment occurred in New York City while I was in Vista. I said, uh, I see myself as a revolutionary uh, black nationalist, and I'm going to be committed to the revolution until it's made in my uh, home country and home community, and I'm not going to rest until that's done. I, when I went into this, I would say I was a liberal, a Negro capitalist mm -hmm. who wanted to go to college for individual reasons, to get a good job and to make more money than anybody in my, parent, in my family ever had because I was the first one to go to college in, in my family. But when I got back, I wouldn't care how long I lived, going to jail, nothing but the liberation. Uh, and creating revolutionary change for black and other oppressed people. Okay, wow. So I want to talk a little bit about your time at the UW that you just mentioned. Okay. Um, you were you a founding member of the University of Washington's Black Student Union. Yes, and... first black student union in Oregon or Washington. Okay. It was at the University of Washington. It stemmed from 
this was a historic, boy, I need to do some research on this, it'll be something. The Historic Black Youth Conference, West Coast Black Youth Conference, was held Thanksgiving weekend, 1967, at a black church in Los Angeles, California. And uh, because of the Seattle Communist uh, Party, uh, they found out about it, the rest of us, and they reached out to the blacks in SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Remember, we hadn't organized the BSU until January 68, after we came back from this black youth conference. And then we started organizing and putting money together. We ended up taking 33 black students, high school, college age, a couple street brothers, uh, down to Los Angeles for this conference, and it had a profound impact. Come on, Carla. That is where we found out that up in Oakland, there was some youth group called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Mm. It was there where we found out that out of the ashes of, of Watts in 1965, grew a really dynamic at that time. This bronze developed there. Cultural black culture group called Us, led by Ron Karinga, and he was at the conference. At that conference, Harry Edwards, a sociology professor from San Jose State, came down there with some of the top black track stars at San Jose State, uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, amongst others. They were all students at San Jose State. And they got in a workshop around sports and uh, from UCLA was uh, Lou Alcindor and Mike Warren, the starting guard for UCLA, and Lucius Allen, the starting guard for UCLA. All these cats uh, under the stewardship of Harry Edwards, Professor Harry Edwards had a workshop, and it was in that workshop that the idea uh, were, was begun for boycotting the 1968 Olympics. Okay. Wow! It was uh, that happened at the. It was at, it was at that conference that we got introduced to this fantastic brother. You, you know, you'd have dug him. His name was Jimmy Garrett. He was president of something called the Black Student Union at San Francisco State. And he talked about how they was radicalizing uh, that campus. And we got very, very excited about Black Student Union. We didn't have any. So, um, I mean, we're so excited that all of us went down there as members of SNCC. And on the bus going back, Carla, we talked about organizing black student unions at uh, junior high, high school and college when we got back to Seattle. So on January 6, 1968, when we got back, that's the very first uh, week of school, we announced that we existed. We didn't go to the student affairs office and fill out paperwork and say, we want you all to recognize the black we had a rally in front of the hub and say we exist. We, and we told them we wasn't going to go fill out no form. The Black Student Union is legitimate. It exists. And we're here to change the institutional racist, we're college students, the institutional racist, racist nature of this uh, university. And we're going to do it by any means necessary. Uh, so that was, uh, that Black Youth Conference was a centerpiece. Uh, the second centerpiece of my development and the development of the movement here in Seattle. We came back, and about a, a month after we were here, we, we brought Jimmy Garrett, the president of Black Student Union in San Francisco State, up here, and he even helped us organize better. And by, we just organized January 6th. February 15th, 1968, 
we had our seller demands for the University of Washington. But Carla, we also had organized 13 black student unions at the junior high and high school levels in Seattle by mid-February. So I want to ask you about that. I want to ask you two questions. First is, how did you, when you came back to UW, my guess is that there are a lot of black students who were like you when you first got to UW. My job here lot. is to, well, well, the, the, yeah. of the black students who were there. Okay, it's 60 out of 35,000. That a lot of them came with the intention of doing the best they could, representing well so they could get a good job when they oh, graduated. Yeah, yeah no, that's true. And how, so how did you go about changing. Sort of changing or radicalizing or just getting okay. other students to become involved? And then how did you spread it? That's a, that's a very good question. Uh, I mean, E.J. Brisker had been in SNCC and, and down south and had this tooth. But his tooth was missing, but it was knocked out. He was kind of proud of it uh, by the, popo, I mean, the police in Mississippi. So he was experienced. Carl Miller had been in the service and got let out in Fort Lewis and stayed uh, in Seattle, but he got radicalized in the service and came out. Eddie Demings, and uh, Eddie Walker, I was looking for some of his artwork, I mean, we don't have any in here, had, uh, were freshmen out of Cleveland High School, but somehow they had been at Stokely's speech uh, at, the, at, at Garfield High School in April of 67 and got excited and joined SNCC. Uh, Aaron Dixon had organized the Black Student Union while he was still at Garfield. Okay. I mean, no, 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 he had organized his brother Elmer, who organized God, because Aaron was out there with us at the University of Washington, 67, 68, and he was an upward bound student. So that's how we came together. And then we start, the BSU only had 13 of the 63 members join. And there were people that were already kind of uh, socialized around black power. And that's all we were able to get. But after we organized, we gradually got more students involved. Matter of fact, uh, we radicals uh, ran E.J. Brisker to be the first president of the Black Student Union, but Dan Keith, who's a doctor in Los Angeles now, won the election and became hmm. the first president of the Black Student Union University of Washington. It set us back some, but we did all the organizing. Dan was into his class, and he wanted you know, to be in the movement, and he was involved in, in the BSU. Uh, but we only had a core group of about 13 to eventually, by the time we had to sit in in May of 68 on Malcolm's birthday, still the first year of our existence because we were moving fast. Being a student is a transitional kind of uh, situation. The way we built is the junior high and high school black student unions was our foundational support. Mm. I'm going to tell you something that very few people in Seattle know that of the 123 uh, black uh, youth that sat in at the University of Washington, only 18 of us were University of Washington students. People really? don't know that. The picture that was taken uh, when we were walking out of the city and they captured three brothers, all of whom were street brothers in the center and never finished high school, much less went to any college. We organized the community of youth in Seattle. They were mostly 
Well, 30 or more Black Panthers, because by May 19th, we had organized a Black Panther Party for self-defense in Seattle, Washington, April 14th, 1968, when it started. In one month, we had a lot of youth that were in the Black Panthers of Seattle. 30 of them came out to the sit-in. We organized the Garfield Black Student Union, 10 or 15 of them came. We organized the Franklin uh, uh, Black Student Union, about 20 of them came because we had already organized a sit-in in Franklin on March 29, 1968, and that was the first time that I ever went to jail. We organized, as about eight from Cleveland High School that came, and the 10 to 20 street brothers, mm. they was right off the street, man. They was out there because they were ready to fight. They might not have known a whole bunch of black. They knew black powers all right. They agreed with that. But they weren't real into political organizing. But they right. sat in with us and they knew it meant if we didn't win our demands, uh, we were, uh, those of us who were students would get kicked out. All the rest of us was going to jail. So we never had mass uh, organizing amongst black because there's only 60 of us. I think 20 out of 60 is pretty good. And so what I'm, what I'm taking from this, a couple things. One is that you don't need everybody. You don't even need a majority. You got to be organized, yeah. yeah. But you got to be unified, organized, and have a vision. Margaret Reed, uh, by the way, Carla was the one that we studied in 68 the great anthropologist, mm -hmm. uh, she said, change anywhere in the world is only made when there's a core organized group of committed visionaries. You gotta have a vision what you want. And with that core group, you can change communities, nations, and the world. We talked about and read that article over and over and Margaret Reed was, why, was correct. Uh, but we had a lot of people that, so I don't think it's accurate to say that none of the other black students were interested. They just weren't core members. They didn't make the Black Power Movement uh, their life because they wanted to graduate, but they didn't want to be Uncle Tom's either. So they mm -hmm. all joined. And by the time we had our sit in, uh, you know, 45 members of the campus could say that they were members of the Black Studio, but only 20 of us sat in. That's what I wanted okay. to yeah. clarify. So we attracted people. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'd like to ask you what you think is your lasting legacy, or not yours only, but the VSU's lasting legacy at University of Washington, and if you think there are people who are carrying on that work now. I think the lasting legacy of the Black Student Union on the University of Washington campus uh, is a rather significant uh, reforms, not revolutionary changes, but reforms that we were able to bring about. Being a student is very transitory. For most of us, it's just four or five years on a, on a university campus. So. The fact that we were able to get the University of Washington to commit to a very significant effort to recruit more black, Latino, Native American, uh, low-income Asian, and low-income white communities was a profound difference from any time in the university's past. As that school year began, 19, in September 19, 67, 
there were 35,000 students, 60 black students, and there had never been more than that. At the time, there were four uh, Native Americans on campus, and in the school's 100 so year history, there had never been more than that. And we checked our, our, our curricular on the campus at that time, and we found that there were 1,800 classes offered in, in the arts and, and, and humanities departments. And we couldn't find one book written by uh, or about African-American, Asian, Latino, or Native American uh, peoples that was being used in any class. We went further. We could not find any article that any of these classes was using in order to educate the uh, mostly young uh, folks on the campus. So it was clear to us that the University of Washington, like most or just about all white universities on, uh, in the U.S., was an institutionally racist environment, mm -hmm. and it cried out for a change. Mm -hmm. uh, we found that there were just a couple more examples, 600 counselors on the campus in various uh, departments, divisions, units of the campus, and there was not one African-American, Asian, Latino, or Native American uh, counselor. There was two black professors uh, out of 1,800 in arts and humanities. And we said, this stuff got to change, and we wasn't going to leave that campus. Well, if we left the campus, it'd be because we got kicked out trying, but we weren't going to leave it without changing it. So I think our legacy, and it's reflected in the fact that our organization became much more respected and also feared. Uh, all that's a tribute to the unity and the determination of the black students on that campus and also the black people in a broader African-American community. And I was proud of the fact that many of the younger students in BSU, particularly starting in the fall of 68, we took time out and went and talked to their parents and told them why we wanted and had recruited their daughter or son into the Black Student Union and what it meant. And that ended up paying dividends because the powers that be were never able to uh, divide uh, the Black youth on the University of Washington campus from the community as a whole, but particularly from the our elders. Mm -hmm. Couldn't do it because we worked at it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's... So that speaks that to some of the hard work of organizing, legacy. too. That, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's not just... Organizing surface, and yeah. being serious. Mm -hmm. We didn't... We, yeah, we wasn't going to tell the president or departments that we were going to do something. We didn't at least make the effort to do it. So now I want to switch gears a little and talk about the Gang of Four, which, to give some context, okay. you were part of a group called the Gang of Four, which is a unique multiracial group of activist leaders. It, was, it included you, Bernie White Bear, Bob Santos, and Roberto Maestas. First, I want you to talk to me about how the four of you came together. And I know it's more it's not one story, but sort of several. Yeah. I love telling people that we came together through struggle. Actually, uh, efforts to improve the condition of our peoples uh, was the main thing that brought us together. By way of example, I 
clear, I am clear that I met Roberto Maestas on March 29, 1968, because that's the historic day that the Franklin sit-in took place here in Seattle. On that day in the morning, Franklin High School's principal had kicked two black girls out of school for wearing their hair natural. Oh yes, he went further than that. He told each of them, there were Joyce Driggers and Nan Williamson, that you cannot attend, what well, he didn't tell them, he sent a note home to their parents. Your daughter cannot attend Franklin High School until she looks ladylike again. That was outrageous given that we were in the middle of a black power movement throughout this country. <laughs> so um, that was something. But that sit-in led to me meeting Roberto Maestas. He was the only teacher, and by the way, he was teaching Spanish at Franklin. He had graduated from the University of Washington in 1966. So Roberto was in his second year of teaching Spanish. He was still quite young. But he had some sense uh, of justice and fairness because later I learned that the reason that he was the only teacher that stayed, he said, I was curious, why are all my black students this upset? He didn't know. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to, he said, I wanted to find out what it was all about. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to leave. He's the only teacher that stayed. Matter of fact, he's the only non, there, there wasn't one non-black student that stayed. They all ran out of the, um, building in, I don't know, fear or whatever, because this was the first sit-in that Seattle, Washington had ever uh, experienced. It was led by all black students. So, so they, someone, one of the girls contacted you, and then you, mm -hmm. how did you get involved and they, come to the sit-in? I was already meeting, this was March, we started meeting with uh, high school black student unions in mid-January. Uh, so for two months, I'd already been meeting with him. It was one of the male, Trollis Flavors, was the one that called me and said, man, we're about to turn the, we're about to burn this mother down. And I said, hold it, hold it. I could tell it was, t it was tense. Mm -hmm. It was a problem. I said, please wait, Trollis, until, uh, so that we'll get, we'll be down there. Now, Aaron Dixon and Carl Miller, happened to be in the BSU office at the time that I got that phone call. So they jumped in the car and we went, I was driving, we, we went down there. But we had to pass Sixth Stadium, Carla. Mm -hmm. Now it's low. Yeah, but then it was, a, it was a, a baseball stadium for AAA baseball. We had a team called the Seattle Rainiers. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Rainiers wasn't playing that day, but the parking lot was filled. The parking lot was filled with police cars. Oh, wow. 400 of the 800 police cars in all of Seattle, I learned later, were congregated in the parking, the huge parking lot of Sixth Stadium, which is uh, or was on McClellan and Rainier. Mm -hmm. And Franklin's just on 31st and McClellan. So it's just a few blocks from Frank. Franklin, so the word was already getting out, the disturbance had started, and the police had already been called. So when we got to Franklin, we got students together, uh, they, I said, they told us what the issue was, and then Aaron Dixon was smart enough to say, well, uh, do you guys have other issues that you want to bring up when, when we, you know, if you decide 
like we were recommending that we have a sit in and take all the principal's office. They said, yeah. Somebody said, you know, we need a damn uh, principal. There had never been a high school principal in Seattle. I don't know how this kid knew that, but he was correct. Mm-hmm. So we put that down. And thirdly, they said they wanted a black history teacher. There had never been a black history teacher hired by the Seattle Public Schools in the history of our school district. And then finally, they wanted the Black Student Union recognized. They had told the Black Student Union that we can't recognize the BSU because it's all black. Hmm. As if black oppressed people are the ones that organize around race in America, like it's some evil thing we came up with. Uh, and, but those were the reasons that had been given. So with those four demands, plus the reinstatement of uh, Nan Williams and Joyce Driggers, uh, we went into the building. And again, the only one there was Roberto Maestas. And I noticed a lot of students said hi to him. And I said, who is this cat? And they said, that's Mr. Maestas. He teaches Spanish and he is cool, Brother Gasso. So that was all I needed to hear. Mm-hmm. So later I, and I went and talked to him and he asked really good questions about why we were there. And he seemed really interested. So nobody messed with uh, Roberto on that day. That's how I met him. I had already met Bob Santos, though, before that. We couldn't find anywhere to have these weekly Black Student Union meetings that I've already spoken to you about. We were meeting with about students from four junior highs and seven high schools by mid-March, you know, a couple weeks before the Franklin City. And it, it would be 25 people. We needed somewhere to meet. Eventually, somebody mentioned to me about the end of February, Larry, what about St. Peter Claver, an old Catholic school on 19th, on 17th and Jefferson? Uh, they got a lot of meeting space there, and there's other groups that have begun to meet there. And some cat by the name of Santos is the director. Let's go talk. So one or two black student union members at the University of Washington went with me to go to St. Peter Claver, and it was there. He said, of course, oh, he was nice. He said, of course, you can meet here. And we said, we need to meet on Sundays. He said, well, this is the Lord's house. We're open seven days. I remember <laughs> him saying that. We're open seven days uh, uh, a week. Of course, the Black Students Union, that's what you call yourselves, y'all can meet here. So that was the context way back in 68. Uh, that I met Bob. It wasn't until 1969 when I had become friends with Roberto Maestas that I learned about the fishing rights struggle of Native Americans at the at, at, that was going on, particularly at Puyallup, around the Puyallup River. And at the time that we went out there, it was one of those days that Dick Gregory was also out there to give his support to the Indians, and it was, I went with Roberto out, and I got, he and the other Native American activists, Susan and Sid Mills and his brother, these guys had been in the army, but they were out, they were Indian youth, and they were committed to carrying on the fishing struggle. And they showed us a quote from the treaty that had been signed in 19, uh, 57 that said the Native American tribes 
shall be able to fish in the Puyallup River for, listen to this, as long as the rivers flow. Hmm. We looked out that the river was still flowing. <laughs> and here the, the, the game, the Washington State Gaming Commission was saying they got a limit when and how much fish they catch. Hmm. No, nah, those days are gone. So we expressed solidarity. But the reason I brought that up, Carla, is that was where I met a Bernie White Bear. Okay. He had been one of the occupiers of Alcatraz, and he had just come back home. He's a Colville Indian from Spokane, north of Spokane. And he'd come back home uh, to, to, to be helpful, to be in the movement. To, he, had, he had four honorable years in the service, but he, was, he said, I'm back here to fight for my people now. Mm -hmm. So it was in that context that I met uh, Bernie White Bear in the late spring of 1969. So that is how the Four Amigos first met. And then we started always calling one another and coming together around struggle. But eventually, like our book says, uh, besides being fellow travelers in terms of being involved in the movement for empowerment of, of non-white and third world peoples, we became really good friends. We started hanging out together. And I think that added to the the history that got built up around the uh, friendship and association of the four of us, both in terms of the movement and, and, and being close uh, in the broader non-white communities of Seattle. And I don't think it was until about the mid-80s that people start referring to us as a gang of four mm. or the four amigos after we organized the Minority Executive Directors Coalition. By 1982, Larry Gasso was Executive Director of, El Cent uh, of the, the Centurion Motivation Program. Roberto Manassas, besides being a founder of El Centro, was the Executive Director of El Centro de la Raza. And Bob Santos, by then, was the uh, executive director of the International District Improvement Association, the most active uh, organization mobilizing people around Asian community issues at that time. And then finally, back in 1970, Bernie White Bear had been the founder of United Indians of All Tribes Foundation. Mm -hmm. And by then, he was the executive director of what became known as the Daybreak Star Cultural Center. And he was setting up a lot of righteous programs to serve Native Americans out there. The Daybreak Star Center, and this is the last thing I want to say, had grown out of a 1970 takeover of a certain part of Fort Lawton, you know. Uh, they took it over in March of 1970. The BSU first went out there in May 2nd, 1970. After Bernie called me and said, man, we want to have, we need to have broader support uh, from our Latino and Black and Asian uh, brothers and sisters. Can you bring some people out here? I'd already uh, read about it, so I knew it was a righteous struggle that our Native brothers and sisters were carrying on at that time. And I read that they were going to jail, that there was about 100, 150 young Indians that was living in teepees out there on the base. I was kind of surprised that 
the U.S. government was still allowing it. But the reason they allowed the Indians to stay there as long as they did, they are they had progressive whites coming out there, they had progressive Latinos coming out, and then they had progressive blacks uh, coming out there and progressive Asians, and they didn't know what to do around. Oh, and they had another treaty where they had told them that 36 and a half acres of this, oh, it's beautiful, pristine. Have you been to Daybreak Spot? Yes. And oh, looked yes. at that view yes. from the door. That's bad. That's about as bad as it gets in the world community in terms of beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the property that they had, that the U.S. government. Matter of fact, Carla, uh, the 254 treaties signed with major Indian tribes throughout this country from uh, 1740 to 1934, the U.S. government broke every one of them. So yeah, we in the Black Power Movement was definitely going to fight with them. But anyway, uh, one night on May 2nd, uh, 14 of us went out there and we had black leather coats on and slacks. Because, you know, even as revolutionary black men, you know, they be thinking they cool. <laughs> so they weren't going to go out there, no moccasins or nothing like that. <laughs> and then about 11 of us stayed three days in the teepee. We ain't never, come on, man. Had our flight on, but we still slept on those, te- those teepees. That, those are all examples of the kind of unity that got built uh, amongst the four amigos in the early days. Daybreak Star strongly inspire uh, Roberto and El Centro de la Raza's founding. Okay, I was going to ask because you Because it was okay. occupied on, on Columbus Day. I love the fact that Roberto chose uh, to have October 12th be the day that we be in the uh, building. And I say we because I, I feel privileged as being one of the uh, men and women uh, who are Occupied that on the evening of October 11, 1972. El Centro was the old Beacon Hill Elementary School. It had been closed in 1966. And this is 1972, eight years later, no occupation whatsoever. The school district had tried to rent it. And the way that we got it open that, that late afternoon, the 11th, is that uh, Roberto said that we want to start some we have funding from South Seattle Community College to start English as a second language program. We'd like to look at some of the rooms. So they thought uh, when they opened the door that they were Could showing the building. Yeah. yeah, yeah, going to get some rent money. Uh, so they opened the door, but then Roberta opened the back door and in came, again, a little over 100 people. And there were 14 Native Americans, about 12 blacks, uh, 12 whites and about 60, 70 Latinos, uh, brothers and sisters, and about seven, eight Asians. So it was multiracial. Mm-hmm. Roberto, I never forget the moment, but he came in there, he was so excited, got us all in, looked at us, and said, Oh, shoot, uh, I know right now what the name of this place is going to be. El Centro de la Raza. Mm-hmm. The Mexicans all start clapping, but then the rest of us start clapping when he said the following. That means the center of all the people, not 
just Latinos, but all the people, and then everybody roared. And all the way down to today, some 45 years later, that place will forever, there'd be a rebellion if somebody started talking about we want to change, like whatever, they can't, we want to change the name. Mm -hmm. Because it's perfect. The center of the people, they set up the ESL classes, they set up the Jose Marti Child Care Center. Uh, they still have one of the biggest food banks in uh, Seattle. By the way, about 60% of the people that go to their food bank are Asian because Beacon Hill is, is, has been a place where a significant uh, number of Asian peoples, uh, working class and poor, have settled. It's, it's beautiful up there. And I mentioned to you earlier, Carla, that they last summer, summer of 2016, opened up 110 units of new housing. Yes. And it's not 10% or 5% or 20% affordable. It's 100% uh, affordable for low-income people. Yes. The rent is, for everybody, is between 350 and 700. And they're one, two, and three bedrooms. A righteous reflection of El Centro is about one-third black, one-third Asian, and other minorities, and one-third Latino that live in there. And on that note, I'm going to have to pause this conversation for today. Stay tuned for the second part of my conversation with King County Council Member Larry Fawcett.